Hi, this is Mary Van Vaughn, and today's passage is going to be Genesis 17, verse 15, through Genesis 18, verse 15. And it's the New Living Translation. Then God added, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai, for from now on you will call her Sarah, and I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings will be among her descendants. Then Abraham bowed to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he wondered. Besides, Sarah's 90. How could she have a baby? And Abraham said to God, Yes, may Ishmael enjoy your special blessing. But God replied, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You will name him Isaac. And I will confirm my everlasting covenant with him and his descendants. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also, just as you have asked. I will cause him to multiply and become a great nation. Twelve princes will be among his descendants. But my covenant is with Isaac, who will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. That ended the conversation, and God left Abraham. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and every other male in his household and circumcised them, cutting off their foreskins exactly as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old at the time, and Ishmael, his son, was 13. Both were circumcised the same day, along with all the other men and boys in the household, whether they were born there or bought as servants. The Lord appeared again to Abraham while he was camped near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day about noon, as Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent, he suddenly noticed three men standing nearby. He got up and ran to meet them, welcoming them by bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while my servants get some water to wash your feet. Let me prepare some food to refresh you. Please stay a while before continuing on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, get three measures of your best flour and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a fat calf and told a servant to hurry and butcher it. When the food was ready, he took some cheese curds and milk and roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them there beneath the trees. Where is Sarah, your wife? They asked him. Oh, she's in the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, about this time next year I will return, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening to this conversation from a tent nearby, and since Abraham and Sarah were both very old, and Sarah was long past the age of having children, she laughed silently to herself. How could a worn-out woman like me have a baby, she thought, and when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? About a year from now, just as I told you, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied that she had laughed, but he said, that's not true. You did laugh. And that's the end of the passage. So, uh, before I get into the thing that I noticed in reading it this time, I wanted to just back up a little bit and recap um, about what has happened uh, uh, about Isaac up till now. So God had told Abraham to leave his country, and he told Abe that he was going to bless him and make him a father of a great nation and give him this foreign land that he was traveling to. 
And later, after years of travel, God again tells Abe, I'm giving you all this land to your kids, and you're going to have so many descendants, just like dust, you can't even count them all. Abe continues to travel about through countries and wilderness, collecting up livestock, and kings and pharaohs lavish gifts on him. Some say that by current standards, Abe would have been a billionaire. So he was a billionaire homeless man wandering around living in tents. Then Abe suggests to God that all this stuff he has is no good because he has no son to inherit it. And again, God says, you are going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. So looking at things just in the natural, Abe and Sarai, they knew that it could not happen because they were too old and Sarai was past childbearing abilities. So they had figured out a way to make it happen. Abe could have a son with the maid Hagar, and he did, and that ends up causing a lot of trouble. Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands, which complicated things a bit. Well, maybe actually a lot, but that's another story and another lesson. But God and his plan were still going to happen. About 12 years later, God again tells Abe that he will have a son. And now we're caught up to where we are in today's passage, where God reminds Abe that the son will come from Sarah. This whole process has been about 25 years, and Abe now responds in disbelief, laughing to himself. He probably got tired of hearing the promise, but never seeing it happen. God continues, though, and now also tells Abe what the son's name will be and when he will be born. Finally, a few months later, the Lord visits Abe in the form of these three men. It was interesting to me here that Abe actually asked them to sit and wait under the tree for dinner, and they did for as long as it took to slaughter, drain, prepare, roast, serve a calf, and all the trimmings. That's just a side note. <laughs> this three-man Lord then tells Abe again that the son is coming through Sarah and that it will be within a year. Sarah, who was not present, but she was eavesdropping from a nearby tent, laughs, and the text says that her laughing was done silently to herself, thinking to herself that it's simply not possible because I'm just plain old too old. God had been telling them what he was going to do, reminding them over and over for a quarter of a century, and Sarah basically says to herself, ah, uh, yeah, right, ha. Though it was silent, the Lord over in the other tent with Abraham responds, um, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? And here's the part that I really want to focus on for a minute. How the Lord responded to Sarah. First, he knew her inmost and unspoken thoughts. Second, he called her by name. And three, he simply states the simple truth. There's really no more to it. She's not chastised, punished, mocked, or shamed. He just kindly corrects her internal wrong thinking with the truth. From here, the story just goes on to the three men Lord talking to Abe about Sodom and then leaving. When I do listening prayer, where I go to God about something, whether I'm going to ask him about something or thank him or just let him have it, I have learned that when I'm being corrected, he's the only responder who uses my name. This is one of the ways that I can be sure that it's him. He says, Mary, and his correction is gentle. He simply speaks the simple truth, and he addresses what's really going on. In Sarah's case, the issue on God's mind wasn't about laughing. In fact, I can actually imagine him chuckling right along. The issue was truth. She wasn't speaking the truth, accessing and speaking the truth about what was going on deep inside her. 
This is the place where freedom is found. But Sarah just laughed to herself, got busted, became afraid, and denied it. As soon as she realized that she'd done something questionable, her fear took over, and she lied to protect herself from the coming consequences which she imagined. But God says her name. He uncovers the truth she had buried, and he leaves it at that, without whatever it was Sarah was afraid of. When God corrects me, sometimes he just tells me the truth so that I can get my thinking straight. Other times, he may also suggest to me some way to clean up my mess. Never once have I gone to him with something that I did, some shameful secret, and had his response be the terrible one I imagined it would be, the thing that was scaring me and keeping me away from him. I have found him to be always good, always better than what I imagined. And if my shameful sin requires more than just a correction of truth, what he says is always uplifting filled with hope. It brings life. It empowers me to both want to change and to believe that he's going to enable and be right with me as I walk out both the consequences and the changes that I need to make. Fear is a liar and love is the antidote. All lies are oppressors and the only way to freedom is through truth. Did you know that there is now no, <clears throat> sorry, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. I want to jump ahead for a second into the New Testament to what might be a familiar story. There was a woman who came out to a well for water and met Jesus alone there. She had already had many husbands, and currently she was living with some guy that she wasn't married to. She was, especially in those days, a radically shameful woman. But something that Jesus saw in the woman at the well set her apart from the others. She spoke the truth. He asked her a question that threatened to expose her sin, and she answered with the truth. He said, where's your husband? And in a conversation where you would expect her to lie, distract, spin, or even try to avoid answering, she just says the truth. Jesus had drawn near to her and made a statement that had the potential to uncover her deepest shame, and she does not recoil from him, but she answers with the truth. Yep, it's true, got no husband sleeping around. Only from this place can she go any further with him. And Jesus tells her that she spoke well. The original Greek there means beautifully, finely, excellently well, so that there is no room for blame, uprightly, honestly, honorably, commendably. And he said that her speech was true. And that word means true and not concealed, but loving of the truth. So he pointed out to her that he could see that she told and loved the truth. Did you know that Jesus is the truth? That's in John 14, 6. He's not a truth or some truth. He's actually all truth. There's no such thing as your truth or my truth where actual truth is about anything. There is Christ Jesus. At the well, Jesus found a woman who loved the truth and was willing to speak it in spite of what it might cost her. She would have been expecting condemnation and shame, but he communicated honor because she gave the truth. It seems to me that then Jesus says something to her like, guess what? You're a true worshiper. You didn't even know who you were worshiping, but now you do. Loving and speaking the truth is worshiping God and you're doing it. This woman then goes all in for Jesus. We cannot spin lies or hide in shame and go in all in for Jesus at the same time. God is complex for sure, but he is not complicated. Sarah got a simple lesson, a gentle one. Speak the truth. 
And the sweet thing is that it came without condemnation because the heart of God does not seek to punish and condemn. It seeks to open our eyes, to override fear with love, to draw us into truth, to set us free because he himself is truth. Wherever the truth is, whether it's that you laughed a little in unbelief or that you're living in shameful sin, when you speak it to him, you will find him. And it's in that truth that you will be set free. And that's from John 8, 32. Let me pray for me and for us. Lord God, in Jesus' precious, powerful name, I am asking for myself and for everyone listening and for our body here at Watermark that we would become true lovers of the truth. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to recognize when we're not quite there, uh, when we might be spinning things a little bit, and would you give us the discernment to, to connect with your internal spirit to see what really is, to speak what really is, so that we can come to know you in the full measure of who you are as the one and only truth. We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus.